when Paul writes to the Thessalonians in first Thessalonians five, one of the things he encourages them is, is in chapter five, verse 12. We ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And that happens in lots of different ways, ways in which people in the context of the church speak uh, into our lives. Um, ben, I appreciate you doing that this morning from the keyboard. Um, n- not only uh, in the way that you've blessed us by doing that, uh, but also by facilitating a much needed rest for Chris, who serves us in that capacity week after week after week. I find that sometimes I, I have to remember with Chris to say, when was the last time you had a week off? <laughs> and it, it's usually too long in between. Uh, he just serves us really, really faithfully. Uh, you may or may not know, he, he arranged his work schedule a while ago. I can say this because he's not here this morning, so I'll embarrass him, not in front of him. He rearranged his work schedule a while back so that he can be in the church on Thursdays, devoting himself to planning uh, for Sunday morning worship services. And I just deeply appreciate uh, his thoughtfulness and the the depth with which he engages with the text that's going to be preached that morning so that he can work to shape the worship service uh, both around that text and in connection with the gospel. Uh, certainly, I, I would be missing out if I didn't mention Kelly as well as one who just through a labor of love serves our kids, uh, my kid included, um, who of course is always good in Sunday school, right? Of course, um, I think you are. And, and year after year, week after week, Kelly is faithful to serve uh, our family, to serve other families, to serve families uh, year by year, uh, some people who are probably grown up by now. Um, so let's remember that. Uh, maybe mention it to them next week. Uh, respect them. Uh, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Uh, One of many examples here of folks who serve faithfully um, to teach and invest in us. When you invest in people, when you you invest in people through the gospel, uh, when, when you bring the good news about Jesus to someone, uh, maybe for the first time and maybe for the thousandth time, when you bring that good news and they respond and you get to see God working through you in the life of somebody else in such a way that they're compelled by that message and they're changed. What happens to your relationship with that person? Your heart is knit to that person. So often they become dear to you. You find yourself saying things like you have become very dear to us or even Things like, you are our glory and joy. That's, those are two things that Paul says to the believers in Thessalonica, the Thessalonian believers. Uh, That is how Paul and his partners at the time of writing 1 Thessalonians, uh, his partners were Silas and Timothy. That's the way they felt about these believers in Thessalonica. The problem was they had almost no way to tell them how they felt. Of course, they're at a time when there's, there, there's, there's no texting, there's no email, there's no fax machine, there's no 
uh, there's no telephone. There's no tele. There's, there's nothing except getting to them in person and or sending them a letter, which was a big project. There's a big, big project worth taking on. So that's what Paul does as he writes the first and second letters to the Thessalonians. You know, we've been uh, in the gospel of Luke. We're going to put that on pause. We got through chapter six uh, last week, and we're going to put that on pause for the summer. And look at this letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. Uh, We may get into second Thessalonians as well before the fall, but we'll uh, trust the Lord with that timing. But for this summer, uh, we want to, we want to look at Paul's, at least his first letter to the Thessalonians. And this morning we're looking at what we have as the first chapter of that letter. First Thessalonians one verses one to 10. I want to read that before I go any further. Paul, Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. When Paul greets the Thessalonians in verse one of this letter, That greeting flows out of his history with the Thessalonians. Their faith in Christ and Paul's relationship with them is very fresh. It's all just very recently happened. As he writes, he's writing at a time that's maybe a year or two after he has first visited them and they have come to faith in Christ. So sometimes when when I read the Bible, uh, it feels old to me. Because in one sense, it is is 2000 years old. It's it's timeless. When Paul writes this letter, everything about his relationship with the Thessalonians is fresh. Their faith is fresh. It's new. This is not old to them. And I'm hopeful that the freshness of their faith, the freshness of Paul's relationship with them in a context that was not easy for them. Uh, will be refreshing to us, will be encouraging to us this summer. The Thessalonians don't have, to be, uh, don't have to be informed about their history with Paul. They know about it. It's fresh in their minds. Uh, but it will be helpful for us to get caught up with where they are. How did Paul come into contact with these people who are now new believers? And 
What was that relationship like? So I want to back up just a little bit in order to, to help us to feel what this greeting may have been like for the Thessalonians. This started on what we know as Paul's second missionary journey. So he has, he has gone out now for the second time to go, uh, to go partly to visit churches that he has established on his first missionary journey. He shared the gospel with them, and now he wants to go out and, and, and check on them and see how they're doing. And he takes Silas with him, or Sylvanus. So Silas has a Hebrew name and a Latin name. And so sometimes we hear him referred to as Silas and sometimes like in this letter as Sylvanus, uh, same guy. He's with him. And then partway through this second missionary journey, as Paul and Silas traveled through Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, they're traveling through this and they, they find this young man who is a new believer, maybe converted on Paul's first trip through there, a young man named Timothy, and they take Timothy with them as well. So Paul and Silas and Timothy are traveling through Asia Minor, traveling through Turkey, and, and as they do, this is recorded in Acts 16 through 18, as they travel through this area, they more than once they try to go into a particular area and more than once we're told that they weren't able to go in there. And the reason is because the Lord didn't allow them to. Uh, the spirit of the Lord prevented them from going into these places that they had intended to go to, to preach the gospel. And they, they may have wondered why. We're not given a direct explanation, at least at that point in the book of Acts, as to why is it that that God is saying, no, you're trying to go here. I don't want you to go here. You're trying to go there. I don't want you to go there. And then they end up in Troas, which is kind of the end of the line in terms of Asia Minor. It's on the West Coast. There's no further to, there's no further to go. And so it'd be very easy to ask, well, so what next? What do we do now? And then Paul has a dream. This is in Acts 16, 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So here's Paul with his companions. He's in Asia Minor. This is where they feel like they're supposed to work. This is where they've done their work in the past. They're trying to follow up on it. And God is saying, no, not here, not here. And then he has a vision of a man in Macedonia. This is across the Aegean Sea. This is further west, uh, past Turkey, across the Aegean Sea into what we know as modern day Greece. There's a man that Somehow, Paul knows is from Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so they do. And they get on a ship and they travel over to Macedonia, modern day Greece. And when they get there, they start stopping mainly in the major cities. And the first major city that they stop at is Philippi. And we have some of the some of the common, even Sunday school common stories about his time in Philippi. You may Remember the story of Paul and Silas who are imprisoned pretty quickly when they're there. And this is the story where they're, they're praying and singing hymns in the middle of the night in the prison and the other prisoners are 
listening to him, probably wondering, what in the world is this all about? And then there's this earthquake, and it opens the doors and breaks the shackles, and somehow all the prisoners stay there, and the Philippian jailer is converted, and, and, and Paul and Silas then are set free, and they leave Philippi. So there's this, there's this amazing experience in Philippi, and it's after that point that they pass through a couple more small towns, and the next major city that they get to is Thessalonica. Still there today. It's still called something a lot like Thessalonica anyway. You can find it on Google Maps. Been there for a long time. And Paul and Silas and Timothy show up in Thessalonica. And the story of their time is in Acts 17, verses 1 to 9. I'm not going to read the whole thing this morning, but you can read it there. And what happens in the beginning of Acts 17 is very, very recent when Paul writes to the Thessalonians in the letter we have before us today. It's a couple of uh, highlights. It may not have altogether felt like highlights when they were there. First, Acts 17.5. So here they are in Thessalonica. They're preaching the gospel. Uh, Paul shows up, and the first place he goes, if he has an opportunity, is to go to a synagogue. So this is, of course, a, a sort of a Jewish-style church, uh, the thing that, that served as church for Jewish people, particularly in the Old Testament, of course, today as well. And so Paul goes to the place where the scriptures that Jesus had fulfilled were read every Sabbath. He goes there. There's a starting point there. So he goes there, and he begins sharing with them the, the message that this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one that God promised to his people. And the fact that there is a population of people who have the scriptures doesn't turn out uh, to help Paul in his mission. This is Acts 17.5. But the Jews were jealous. This is after some people respond to the message. The Jews were jealous and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, these are probably Gentiles, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So they, they set up this mob, this riot. Uh, they try to get a hold of Paul and Silas and Timothy, but evidently they can't find them. So they find the believers that they can find, and they threaten them, and they take money from them. And, of course, it's obviously dangerous here. Uh, these, this little community of new believers is caught between uh, the, the, the unbelieving Jewish population and the unbelieving Gentile population. They see that it's dangerous, so they take Paul and his partners and they sneak them out of town by night. The brothers, this is Acts 17.10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. It is uh, so threatening there, so dangerous. The people are in such an uproar in opposition to the gospel that, that some of these people actually follow Paul from Thessalonica to Berea. Uh, this is verse um, 13. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So Paul and his companions are snuck out of town by night. But who's left behind? These new believers. 
are left behind. They're left behind in a place that is obviously dangerous for somebody who has embraced this message that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the king. Uh, The Romans would have opposed that, that Jesus is the Messiah. Unbelieving Jewish people would have opposed that. And here's this little community of people, and they're they're left behind in terms of Paul. They've sent Paul away, and now Paul's not there anymore, and they don't have a church library. They don't have other seasoned spiritual leaders there with them. So you can imagine the concern that Paul would have as he has had to leave, and he has other work that he has to do, and yet wondering, are they going to make it? Are they going to be okay? Are they going to be unsettled by the the persecution that they're going to experience? The message that he has brought them has radically changed their outlook on life, their perspective. And, And as a result, it's radically changed their lifestyle as well. They now have a new lifestyle that really doesn't fit with the social circles they had run in before. They're going to look different. They're going to look strange. Uh, People are going to object to them and marginalize them and maybe persecute them. And so the result of the change that they had made in obedience to Christ is costly. It's expensive. It's dangerous. And after these things happen, Paul shows up, brings this message, they believe, they rejoice, and now Paul leaves. And you can imagine how easy it would be when it's not as new anymore. And Paul's not there. And you could start to wonder, is it it real? Is it real? Because the cost is real. They are being marginalized by the culture, by their social circles, where they had previously found stability, and now they're finding themselves on the outside. And so when Paul writes to them, he affirms to them that they have a new place of belonging, that you do belong. You are in a family. You are in the family. They are in, this is verse 1, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he wishes them grace and peace, we could sort of call this a prayer wish, when he says grace to you and peace, He knows they need it. Now, this is not just good luck. This is, you need some things from God, and I'm asking him right out of the gate to give you grace and to give you peace. You need it, and I expect it for you. I expect that God is going to give you the grace, the power, the strength, and the stability, the peace that you need in order to persevere. And then then Paul begins to rehearse the confidence that he has about these new believers in Christ. He's he's going to really celebrate that in the opening part of this letter as he remembers before God what God has done in the Thessalonians. He's going to do that kind of in in three parts. He's going to say, first of all, what we remember about you, what we rejoice in it, What we rejoice in is that when the gospel came to you, it changed you. You became new people and we could see it. It changed you. We'll see that in verses 2 and 3, gospel transformation. And then he's going to say, we we saw 
We, we remember before the Lord the way the gospel came to you. There's this gospel proclamation, and it came to you in a way that gives us great joy. Now, came to you in a way that, that showed that God was in this. And then in verses 6 to 10, we see the fact that, that not only that the gospel changed you and the way that the gospel came to you, but that the gospel really compelled you. When you heard the good news about Jesus for what it is, you had you, you were compelled to believe in this message. And Paul says, as we stand before God, as we pray for you, these are the things that, that we remember about how the gospel came to you. And we give thanks before God for you, for bringing you to himself. So we start with how did the gospel change you in verses 2 and 3. Paul says, we, we give thanks to God always for all of you because we saw you change. We saw you become different people, even in the short time that we were with you. Acts records maybe three weeks, maybe it was a little bit longer than that, but they weren't there for a long time, but they saw the Thessalonians change. And in each one of these sections, the way it changed them, the way it came, the way they were compelled, Paul gives a, a three-part summary of what happened. And that three-part summary, in terms of the way they were changed, is in verse 3. It says, we gratefully remember your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. When the gospel came to you, Jesus changed your hearts. And when he changed your hearts, you began to act differently. It showed up on the outside. You, you were trusting someone or something. You, you were loving someone or something. You had something that gave you, that gave you at least some sense of hope for the future. And now you trust someone who's really trustworthy. You have found a love that is limitless in its supply so that it now overflows to other people. You have a new hope for the future, one that gives you a confidence that you've never been able to find before. You have new, a new faith, a new love, a new hope, and those things result in visible change. You were obviously changed by trusting in Jesus. Now, Paul's going to expand on this in chapter 4, verses, verses 1 to 12. But for now, he mentions their work and their labor and their steadfastness. This is just on-the-ground stuff. Paul says, you, because of your faith, you are working, you're doing things because of this love that you found from God to yourself through Christ, you're laboring. And, and this is not necessarily something that would have looked dramatic. It's not necessarily something that would have like gone viral if they had the ability to do that. The word that he uses for labor when he talks about their labor of love is a word that can be translated in some contexts trouble. 
this is, this is not necessarily something that's easy. It's not necessarily something that is dramatic. It can just be a, a hard labor of the hands that's done in order to benefit other people. That's done in order to be basically responsible. And, and this is not necessarily something that people would have longed to do at the time. Imagine living in a culture when working with your hands, working hard, getting up every day, day after day to work was, was just something that you had to do. And if you had the ability to get out of that, uh, to find somebody that you could um, either just kind of have pay your bills or that you could take advantage of, or that you could get more out of than you were giving in your work relationship, it would be so easy to do it. And Paul's saying you found a new kind of love that causes you to be faithful in even your daily work, a labor of love. <clears throat> in some ways, this work was, was expressed in, in uh, ethical, moral ways as well. Paul talks about the fact that they, they were learning. They had taken on new commands from Jesus, which included being faithful in your marriage. That was not normal at the time. Uh, at least for men, it wasn't normal to be faithful in their marriage. And Paul says, Jesus has changed you. You're trusting in him. So you're trusting that his ways are better. So you're learning to be faithful in your marriage. It's changing you. Now, by doing that, as I mentioned earlier, they had, they had put the stability of their social circles on the altar. They said, we're, we're not trusting in our own social stability anymore. Jesus, we're trusting in you. You are our hope. And as a result of that hope, because they have a new future in mind because of Jesus, Paul says there's steadfastness. Uh, you, are, you not only made these decisions once when things were new, you're sticking with it. There's a steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus. And when we look at all these things, when we hear about these things, we overflow in gratitude toward God because of you. We're excited. Our hearts are knit to yours. So as we stand before God, we carry you with us. Here we are, we're before God, and you are with us on our hearts. There, there's really this, this three-way partnership that gets described through this letter. There's, there, there's Paul and his partners, and there's the Thessalonians, and there's God. And all three are working together in a way that isn't, that isn't impeded by the fact that they can't be together or see each other. He says, our partnership is real, even though we can't be together, which really bothers us that we can't be with you. But nonetheless, uh, we are together. We, as we stand before God, we remember before God the way the gospel changed you. It thrills our hearts. And we are encouraged as well by the way the gospel came to you. We remember this. This is gospel proclamation in verses 4 to 5. The message that had started to change them was not a message that Paul and his partners had made up. This was a message that had been entrusted to them by God. 
And God had gotten behind that message. He, he had endorsed that message. God had shown up when the message came and said, this is from me and I am calling to you. He had sent the message in such a way that he was telling the Thessalonians, I am calling you to myself. That, that's what Paul says in verse four. For we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you in a certain way. What was that way? Our gospel came to you in such a way that it was accompanied, the words of the message were accompanied with power. That's in verse 5. It came to you in power. It was accompanied by the power of God himself, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5. The kind of power, the kind of personal work, the kind of personal endorsement of the message about Jesus that causes enemies of God to embrace his offer of friendship, his offer of reconciliation. When, when Paul shows up, it's not just Paul. It's not just Paul saying, please believe this message. Please listen to my logic or please Cooperate with my emotional plea. Paul's doing all those things, but there's not enough power in Paul. So God shows up with power to call them to himself. And God was in it before Paul even got there. Remember that time in Asia Minor when Paul and his companions are traveling through there? If you look at the map, it's represented as kind of a a wavy route because they're not getting anywhere. And then they get to the end of the line and Troas on the West Coast may be wondering, why, Lord, what are you doing? And the Lord shows them what he's doing with this vision. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And so we concluded, Luke writes, we concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. He had. So God was setting this up ahead of time. God caused things to be put on pause in Asia Minor so that Paul could get to Thessalonica. They needed him to come over to Macedonia and help them. And so God arranged for that. And as God does this, God proves that his heart is in it. He's saying to the Thessalonians, I am calling you to myself. And when, when they look back on the fact that they've responded to this message, they can see God drawing them to himself. His heart was in it. And Paul adds, you know what? You know, Thessalonians, that our heart was in it as well. When, when we showed up, we, we weren't just, as we brought this message, we weren't just more impressive with the way that we talked than the last people who showed up in town with some message. Uh, we weren't just smarter than the last people who had shown up. We, we weren't selling snake oil. We weren't doing self-help. We were showing up living in a way that was a different kind of different. Paul's actually going to take some time to expand on this in our next passage in chapter 2. He's going to tell them, here's what we were like when we were among you. We were like affectionate parents. And Lord willing, we'll get to that next week. But the way that he simply describes this this time at the, is at the end of verse 5, that 
that it was clear, Thessalonians, you know that we were not there for self-promotion or for profit. The last two words of verse 5, we were there for your sake. We were there for you. And you could tell by the way that we were with you that we weren't just selling something. We were there for your sake. So the, the way that the gospel came to you with God's endorsement, with our sincerity, and the way the gospel changed you gives us confident joy before the Lord as we bring you before him repeatedly. And there's one more thing. There's the way the gospel changed you, the way the gospel came to you, and then in verses 6 to 10, the way the gospel compelled you. As you heard it and you said, yes, that's for me and I want it. And not because it was easy. When the gospel came to you, Paul says, you knew what you were getting into. You could see that you were going to be between the, the, the rock of the unbelieving Jewish community and the hard place of the unbelieving Gentile community. And so you received the word in much affliction. So it's clear that when you chose to do that, the gladness that you experienced wasn't just because of because you were impressed by somebody or because of new, some new thing that you were trying. This was a gladness that came from God himself. You received it in much affliction and in the joy of the Holy Spirit. When God came and endorsed the message, it caused you to be able to see Jesus in such a way that you were able to say, this is the trustworthy person that I've been looking for and never been able to find. This is the person who brings me the love I've been searching for and have never been able to find. This is the person who reframes my whole future with a confidence I've longed for and I've never had before. And as a result, you received the joy of the Holy Spirit. It changed you. And when it, do, when it did, uh, as we would expect, when the gospel is really at work in somebody who has received it by the power of God, it spread. It started happening quickly. Uh, Paul essentially says, you've joined the partnership. Here we were partnering with God, which is an amazing thing in and of itself. And now because you've trusted in Jesus, you've joined this partnership as well. Paul says, when when we, when we show up in different places, uh, we left you and went on to Athens. And now they're in, as best we can tell, they're in Corinth. And as we show up in these different places, we hear people say uh, that they, they know about the message that we're proclaiming because of the way that you responded to it. We get there and people say, yeah, we heard about the, the Thessalonians and how they responded to this message and how they've been changed by it, how they've been transformed, how they were compelled to believe, and how they're standing firm in this message. Verse 8, for the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. So Macedonia is, is mainland, modern day Greece. Achaia is the almost island that's at the south of modern day Greece. I think it's called an isthmus. I'm going to call it an almost island. It's easier to say. So Paul is walking, walking through this area, and as he does, the message about what happened to the Thessalonians is going ahead of him, and he shows up there, and people are like, yeah, we heard about them. 
We've heard about your message. Your transformed life and the spreading report about it is caused by, Paul says in verse 9, the kind of reception that we had among you. We showed up and we were received in a way that's now exploding around us. So what kind of reception was that? How, how was the gospel received when it first came to the Thessalonians? It wasn't received as a new philosophical system. It does that. It wasn't received as a new ethical system, a new, a new, so just do these things and your life will go better. Although it comes with a new ethical system also. This is not just a new philosophical or ethical system. It's not self-help. The message is about a real person who really did something and who as a result of what he did is really going to do something in the future. It's a message not about a system that you can use, but about a person that you can trust. A person who finished work on your behalf that you can never finish on your own, and you can receive that finished work by trusting him. Totally different than any other system that would have been brought to them in Thessalonica. And so Paul gives this threefold summary once again about how they were compelled by the gospel. Verses 9 and 10, you turned to God from idols. That's first. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's second. And third, to wait for his son from heaven. Here you were, uh, apart from the message about God, you had spent your lives, those of you believers in Thessalonica who came out of a pagan Gentile background, you had spent your lives trying to buy life from lifeless idols. And there had to be times when you thought, I really don't find this satisfying. There's got to be something missing here. My interaction with these, with these gods, as best I can identify them, uh, shows me that there's something wrong with my relationship with them. They, they have to be paid off I, I'm not simply in good standing with them, and so I'm going to pay them. But is it really working? Is this really what the divine life is actually like? Is this really how I relate to God or the gods? Somehow, it doesn't seem satisfying, and many of the Thessalonians had spent their lives doing this, you needed someone to come over to Macedonia and help you. And when somebody did, you heard the message of the living and true God. This is the living and true God who gives life to the dead. This is not a false God who is paid off little by little to sort of eke you along. This is the God who gives life to the dead, who gives it for free and who gives it permanently. He does this for us through his son, verse 10, whom he raised from the dead so that he can rescue us from death, really from the worst kind of death, not just from the, the inconveniences and threats of daily life, but verse 10, from, he rescues us from the wrath to come. Paul says, you 
heard the message that we proclaim everywhere we can. Everywhere we get the opportunity, this is the message that we give out. Um, One that he actually writes to the Corinthians at a later time in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Paul says, you Thessalonians, you responded in the way that you did because of what you were responding to. It was a better message than anything you had ever heard. You knew it was when you heard it because the Holy Spirit showed you that it was. You found life in belonging to God through Jesus Christ. The gospel changed you. The gospel came to you in a way that showed that God was in it. And because God was in it that way, the gospel was compelling to you. You knew that it was true. And as a result, when we look back on that and when we hear reports about that, we are deeply encouraged. You encourage our hearts. We stand before God with you on our hearts, thanking him for what he has done in your lives. That's a good thing for us to remember. It's a good thing for us to have eyes for. As we invest in people through the gospel and as people invest in us through the gospel, this is not something that stops when somebody comes to know Jesus Christ, though it certainly includes that. But as we invest in one another and as we invest in others and as others invest in us, that that ministry doesn't happen in a way that's always highlights, does it? Sometimes there are questions. Why are we being redirected from something we thought we were going to? Lord, what are you doing with us? Maybe there are times when the Lord is saying, not there, there's somebody else that needs your help. So if you find, as you're trying to move forward with ministry, as you're trying to move forward to serve and you feel like this keeps getting put on pause, don't give up. Don't give up. You have a message that is just as powerful just as compelling, just as endorsed by God and empowered by the Holy Spirit as it was in this first century. Don't give up. Keep trying. Wherever it is that God shifts you to, maybe it's a foot away, maybe it's 10,000 miles away. Maybe it's right here, but with somebody else. If the Lord is adjusting your ministry, don't give up. Don't be discouraged. There's somebody who needs help from the gospel and they need it from you. And Maybe the Lord wants you staying exactly where you are. Maybe he wants you continuing to work with the same people that you're working with right now. And if if that's the case, and often that's the case, he wants you to persevere, then watch, watch for evidences of God's grace at work in those people. That's not a straight line either, is it? The work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope That's something that needs to be revisited over and over and over. And you you may need to say, like Paul will say to the Thessalonians later, you're doing this, you're doing it, I see it in you. And we urge you, brothers, to excel still more. God has more for you. Don't give up. And as you do that, watch for it, because God is going to be working. Even as the work of faith and 
labor of love and steadfastness of hope are not perfect yet. They are there. And they're there because the power of God through the gospel is there in the people that you are investing in. That watching for grace, that watching for evidence of God's work is, of course, not there for kind of self-congratulating passivity. Oh, good. No more work for me to do. It's there to encourage further work. It's there to cause us to be steadfast in moving forward in investing in others through the gospel in such a way that our hearts are knit to theirs. Father, we ask that you would help us to see where these things are at work among us. Uh, You've shown us perhaps even this week. We pray that you'd show us over the coming week in such a way that our hearts would be knit to one another and to others, to those who know you and to those who don't yet know you, that we would see the power of the gospel at work by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.